This week on Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, my super exciting news, two really good books we've read, the news in Bookworld that Spotify is entering the audiobook game, and Nobel Prize winners, one coup, one not okay, not coup. <laughs> You are listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabor. And what have you been up to this week, Brie? I want to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear about yourself. Yes. Okay. I have something so exciting to share with you. You don't even know what it is. This is all about me. Just, I'm better, very excited. And I want to share it with you. Uh, maybe five people in the world know this and it's top secret. <gasps> it's top secret. Except- it's top secret for like a little bit. <gasps> I got my book cover. Oh my God. And I fucking love it. Which like, as you know, is like, it's such a fraught time and such a fraught moment when you get shown what your book cover, like what they suggest. Did you get book- options? Yes, I did. I, I, It's funny you're bringing this up because I was just going through old photos last night, saw a couple of my ugly book cover options for my <laughs> first book and ha- and shuddered when I saw them. So I know the feeling of seeing them and then giving delicate fe- feedback. So this is it. Don't show the camera. Don't show the camera. Yeah. You Don't- can't like share it. You can't like share it yet. I just want to show you. Okay. When are we going to be able to share it? I don't know. Maybe in like a couple of weeks. <gasps> Brie, that is so cool. Isn't it the fucking sickest thing you've ever seen? <laughs> that is a genuinely brilliant cover. I am shook. I am so stoked. I'm trying to think of what it reminds me of, the kind of book. Do you know what it is? What? And I love these covers. Yeah. It's Franzen S. Yeah, it's Franzen. It's, it's Jonathan fucking okay, Franzen. I'm glad that yeah. you're not taking that no. badly because he's a man and we know how you feel about men. Oh. <laughs> no. The, the, the thing that it's oh it's God, not like I specifically. I know. It's not specifically Jonathan Franzen. What it is is big book. Yeah, it's big, serious, literary book. Yep. This is a big deal. This is a this is a great book and a big deal. A big deal. I'm very very flattered by how gigantic they made my name. For example, (laughs) it's as big as the title, which is a huge compliment. Exactly. It's so declaratory. It's like motherfucker, I am here. This is my new book. That is so exciting. And after five years of work, getting these genuinely thrilling moments. I'm like so – it's made it very, very real, very real now. When are you going to show it? I don't know. I've got like a – this week I have a like meeting with the, you know, marketing and sales department nice and early to s- find out kind of what the, the plan is. Well, you go- we're going to have to put it first on the Cool Story Instagram <laughs> since you've teased all the listeners with it now. <laughs> Yeah, so okay. you guys will be the first to see it <laughs> yeah, all right. at Cool Story Brie Writing. Yeah, you can have like a two-hour exclusive before <laughs> Alan and Unwin <laughs> send it out wherever they do. Two-hour exclusive is great. Yeah. Yeah. What have you been up to? Well, nothing that thrilling. I had a funny – I had one of those conversations this week with my kid that if you like tweeted it, you would get a big that didn't happen. But oh. it was one of the very funny conversations where we went on a long road trip so we were just all in the, you know, chatting in the car, talking, boredom. Boredom, great for good conversations, as we all know. 
And Hamish, who's five and a half, says to me, Mum, what makes a human being? And I was like, wow, that's a good question. And I said, well, and I and you can't use words like philosophical because I wanted to say that's quite a philosophical question. And I said, Hamish, well, that's so existential of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you not the himbo I thought you were? <laughs> and I said, well, some people think different things and some people think it's to do with consciousness and being able to feel for other people and put yourself in their shoes and some people think it's about your soul. Really definitely doesn't think it's about your soul. Look at her. You <laughs> I didn't see say her face. Anything. Right? I, I knew exactly what you think about that. <laughs> and I said, but basically we're a type of mammal. So you know that there's, you know, there's tigers and elephants and human beings are just a type of mammal in that category is a simple question, simple answer, I guess. Because I try to answer some of these questions without Googling because it's good. It's like a good thought experiment at times. And he said, can a bad person still be a human being? I was like, fucking hell, Hamish. Yeah, and I said, I said, yeah, of course, buddy. I said, bad people are absolutely human beings. But also there are not actually a lot of bad people just because someone does a bad thing. It doesn't make them a bad person. And there are some, there are some genuinely, truly awful people out there, but they're a very, very small amount of people. And usually if you think someone's bad, you have to try to be able to give them grace and think about what may, what's maybe has happened in their life to make them behave this way and not think that just because they're a bad person or have done a bad thing that they're not human as well. And he's like, oh, okay. And he's like, hmm. So Vampirina is not a bat person. She's a human being. (laughs) (laughs) And Vampirina is a little cartoon vampire on the TV. (laughs) And he had actually been asking me, are bat people human beings? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought that I was like really stepping up to the plate and having this very deep conversation about empathy. He is a himbo after all. He he just wanted to know vampires are human beings. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is so funny. I know it was very funny. Are they? No, vampires aren't human beings. They're dead. What, a human being's no longer a human after they pass away? Not when you become a zombie or a ghost. Is this because, is this a soul thing? Yes. Oh. I've thought about all of this. (laughs) I'm not one of those parents who say vampires aren't real. Because I'm like, anything can be real. (laughs) Depends. When's your Mercury descending? Exactly. The, my, the intellectual project of my parenting definitely leans more kooky. <laughs> that is so funny. I know it was really funny. But also while I was – so we were coming back from a beach holiday, which means that I – well, actually it should mean that I got to read a lot and I didn't read as much as I th- – I took three books away with me and I read one book. This is interesting to me though because sometimes I find that the books that I take with me on holiday are like a little bit more aspirational than what I actually want to read when I'm then by the beach. Did your selection tell you anything? No, my, I think that I, I'm i good at picking what mood I'm going to be in mm-hmm. and not and not taking away something too heavy. Like I 
takeaway page turners and yeah. or books that I've been like dying to read. I saved them a bit. So it wasn't about the selection. It was just about time. And, you know, I was with my my brother, my sisters, my niece, my kids, my husband, my mum and my dad. <laughs> <laughs> barely well, had, barely had time, time to go to, to the toilet. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone read my books. So mm. I just got through one. Well, and All right, let's talk about yours first. It was The Fraud by Zadie Smith. Look at that. Her uh, her name on this book is as big as the title as well. Actually, it's slightly bigger. bigger. Yeah, I feel well, like the Smith is as big as fraud. Anyway, yes. yes, I think that that's how like you know you're just such a fucking bigger and bigger and biggest yeah. dick player. Like, yeah, you, how much of the cover is taken up by your name? Your cover's better than this cover. Not a bad <gasps> cover, but your cover's oh. better than this cover. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I finally read it, and uh, I did really enjoy it. It wasn't one of my favourites of hers, at a sentence level, she's just so brilliant. She's brilliant. So how she has those, like, insights into human beings and whether they're bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She would have a great insight into whether Vampirina is a human being. But, you know, just that that insight into human psyche and the way that people are and how we relate to each other. So at a sentence level, you know, I dog-eared so many pages just because I love certain sentences I didn't love how some of it was written. A lot of it was reading people having conversations, but it doesn't explain exactly what they're talking about, but you're meant to infer it. And I don't always love that type of writing, especially in a historical novel. Like I, Hmm. but maybe I'm just a bit dumb. (laughs) Um, You're not dumb. (laughs) No, I'm not dumb. But maybe I was in a dumb mood because I was at the beach. That's true. Sometimes I'm not my sharpest. Yeah, and so <laughs> there was some of it where I'm like, I wish you just explain would explain to me what you guys are talking about instead of me having to figure it out. But the middle of the book I love. Okay, I'm a third of the way through, so I think I haven't hit yeah, whatever the, you're about to The talk middle about. of the book I loved and it's all about life on Jamaica mm-hmm. in the 1800s, particularly for the slaves there, but done in, it's just like that That part is Zadie Smith at her best where it's just all like human stories mm-hmm. and interest in people's life and not just about everything that's grim about their lives but also about like, you know, their ordinary joys and human relations. And I, and I also learned so much that I didn't know, which I love doing in a historical novel. So that was my favourite part. But, yeah, I feel like I feel like the chapters were too short. Like I... I wish that she'd made proper big chapters, like it's written with chapters like one or two pages. I definitely still recommend it, but I wasn't as gripped by it as I thought that I was going to be. What are you thinking a third of the way through? I am am finding it really funny and I can't believe more people don't talk about how hilarious it is. I think it's hilarious. It's very dry. Yeah. Oh, well, that's just my like chef's kiss humour. Just, yeah, I'm loving how funny it is. Do you know what's going on all of the time? So far, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Maybe I am just dumb. (laughs) You're not dumb. You are not dumb. But the other thing too, I sent you that um, link. I've been dying to talk to you about. So you and I, Braddy, we both do this thing where we're thrilled every time a new Zadie Smith comes out that she does all of the rounds of interviews on all the podcasts. And now I'm pretty sure you and I have both listened to all of the latest ones that she's done and the most recent. And we both sent each other ones the other had missed because when you're just searching their name, because it comes up with a lot of old episodes, sometimes you can miss. Yep. And anyway, I think we've both sent each other ones that the other hadn't yet listened to. And the latest one that just came out is Zeddy Smith on the podcast Talk Easy. And 
I was just thinking about you so much when I was listening to it. It's so good. And in particular, for anyone who listened to our previous episode where we talked about um, Andrea Long Chu's bad review of Zadie Smith, one of the things that we well, I can't remember what your position was, but oh, one of the things you, you know, can't remember what my position was. I'm completely vindicated yeah. by this interview. <laughs> yeah, I'm like punching the the air, listening to it, being like, "Brody was right." No, yeah. you weren't wrong at all. I think we were both right, but I was like, "Yes, this is what I said." I think we both agreed. So one yeah. of the things we both took issue with was the way Andrea Longchu had mined in in an extraordinary way so much of Zadie Smith's like essays and interviews she'd given and lectures she'd given from years and years and years before and sort of placed them all along the same, uh, what, like as though they'd all just taken place and that we could safely presume that Zadie Smith still held every single one of those opinions and that they were all to be taken as seriously as each other. Yeah, yeah, which and I would I think I went a bit further than you on that as well and felt that she had actually misrepresented some of those essays as well. That's true. Yeah, I remember that. Um, And in this Talk Easy interview, the host has done this extraordinary deep dive and has and goes through and reads out these things to Zadie Smith that she hasn't she can't even remember writing some of them and on many of them her opinions have really changed and she's grown and developed in her perspective since then and it was just the most satisfying like rigorous conversation I have heard in a very long time. Have you ever listened to Talk Easy before? No, that was my first Talk Easy. He is – I was so excited when you sent it to me and said she's done Talk Easy because he is a truly extraordinary interviewer. And I've listened to quite a few of his interviews and often think when someone's doing the rounds, like the celebrity chef Alison Roman oh, yeah. had a new uh, cookbook out a few months ago and she does all these rounds. And he just usually does by far the best interview he is so curious and he the time that he takes in research, his name's Sam. Oh, thank you. I was just yeah, looking up yeah. what's his um, And the time he takes in his research is extraordinary and what he finds. But also I really appreciate appreciate about him how he responds to their answers. It Sam Fragoso. Sam Fragoso, yeah. How he responds to their answers. Like he's not just doing his list of questions and reading out each quote. He actually listens to what they say and responds back to it. And he's only 29. He's so young. <laughs> well, Zadie Smith says he's like there's, there's this like tension between Sam Fragoso and Zadie Smith in the interview about how young he yeah. is. It's well, pretty I funny. I thought that she was more like teasing him a bit and he oh, yeah. was te- teasing her like because he is a funny guy as well. But I loved that interview so much and how she – and also I loved her agreeing with herself from – 23 years ago as well. Mm, yeah. Like, because there were points where she's like, yeah, she's like, I said that. She's like, yep, I still, <laughs> yeah. I still agree with that. And really goes back to how she was treated. I really found it interesting how she was treated by the press yes. and how she felt treated in London when White Teeth first came out when she was 24. Yep. There's been a lot of conversation about that this time around. I think there's some sort of like, there's been a safe distance since White Teeth for a while, but in particular, one of the lines she said that really struck me was how she struggled being the center of other pe- the focus of other people's envy. Yes. And I was like, whoa, shooketh. Like that was when she spoke about she would be mid-interview being interviewed by a journalist and they would be asking her what I considered to be sort of deranged, borderline inappropriate questions about kind of her life. 
And Zadie Smith would realize partway through the interview, oh, like your dream is to be where I am. Like you, you are asking me these weird questions because you wish that you were like this successful novelist. Yeah, and it's not that their dream was to write. It sounded also like the envy that was happening wasn't that their dream was to write a really great book or to write a book at all, but their dream was to be famous. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they were envious of. They weren't actually envious of her work. Yeah. They were envious of all the attention that she was getting the from it. package. Yeah. yeah. It was, a, we'll link to it in the show notes, but also that talk easy, so worth just going through. His interview subjects are so interesting. He did Michelle Williams. Oh, the actress. Yeah. And she spoke in it about Heath Ledger. And also about, and she had really interesting stuff to say also about her teen years and Dawson's Creek. And I think never watched Dawson's Creek. I don't know a fucking thing about it. Oh my god! When I was eleven, I my cousin was visiting from England, and she was like nineteen, and you know, doing like her year abroad, like her gap year. And she was in Canberra, and I was in Grafton, and I used to ring her every Friday night. I still remember this, and have so much affection for her, Elaine. I used to ring her every Friday night and recount to her what had happened with Dawson's Creek that week, essentially minute by minute. <laughs> and she would listen. And it was like Friday night and she was 19. She's like, wow, Bridie. <laughs> Friday night did for a 19 year Did Pacey really? Oh. <laughs> that was like my conversation to have. And it wasn't that she was a big Dawson's Creek fan, so that's who I picked. It was just like... This is the only grown-up listening to me talk about this extremely important thing, which is where, whether Joey's going to pick Pacey or Dawson. What? <laughs> anyway, even without being a big Dawson's Creek fan, I think you'd find the Michelle Williams interview really interesting. His interview with Alison Roman was brilliant as well and he really took it a task at times. He's really good at taking forcing someone to reckon with themselves but not in a gotcha way at all, just in a genuinely intellectually curious way. The thing I think he – one of the reasons I think he gets away with that is because it is so obvious how much effort he has put in. Exactly. And that that is such a sign of respect. And then he's taking them seriously. Yes, exactly. I I take author interviews very seriously and I know that um, people are grateful when I – do author interviews um, and it's just purely because there's no shortcut to for like around the homework. Exactly. Like you just and, do your fucking homework. And sometimes I'm watching some interviews and I wonder if I just noticed this because I've done so many myself and I know what it's like to be the interviewer, mm. to be the interviewee mm. and, you know, I've been doing, um, you know, live events on stage for quite a few years now and you, it's just so obvious when someone is, in inverted commas, winging it. I know. And I often look at the audience and wonder, can they see this? Are they noticing that this is this person this person interviewing hasn't put in the effort that they should have? And I find it so pathetic and disrespectful and I have very I'm extremely judgmental about someone who agrees to interview an author and then doesn't do the homework. Well, <laughs> guess who's interviewing you on stage next year? I don't even know. I don't even know if you know this yet. I what? won't name the event, but I got approached this week to interview you on stage next year for your novel. <laughs> so you can give me my review in the, the week after I do it. <laughs> well, I finished a really, really good book. I'm only going to mention it briefly. Charlotte Wood's new novel, Stoneyard Devotional, is so good. Something I want to say about it is that. It's not a novel that has a plot that is particularly either like easy to summarize or, and it, well, it's not a novel that's plot 
driven. This woman has sort of somehow exited, it's set in the present day, but it's set in this random remote regional pseudo nunnery. Um, and nunnery. Yeah. Convent, what? babe. Oh, what? <laughs> I don't fucking, whatever. <laughs> well, pseudo. Get in touch with your soul. <laughs> Let you know when I find it. Anyway, uh, there are these nuns living together out in this, out in this like country, outside of a country town. And our protagonist has sort of just kind of quit her life. We don't have a great sense of why, but we know that she's sort of in mourning and also that she did this job as some kind of kind of really – in, at, at, like in one of those do-good environmental agencies where people wake up and spend their whole days trying to like undo the damage <laughs> that the rest of us and in particular big corporations do to the planet in particular. And that she just sort of, she had a husband and she just sort of quit her whole life and started living with these nuns. And it's like, that's kind of it, but I could not put it down. There is a way that Charlotte Wood writes, and I remember this being the exact feeling I had after I finished The Weeknd, where I, it's, this is quite specific. You know, when you've been swimming in the ocean for a while and then you have like the taste of fresh water in your mouth and it's like really noticeable and clean and clear. Yes. That's how Charlotte Wood's writing makes me feel that I've been like in the salt water for ages and Charlotte Wood is just this tall glass of water. Everything she writes is real. I never have a moment where I'm taken out of the action because something's a bit clever or like just some kind of witticism. Every single person I meet in one of her books is a human, whole human being that I would not at all be surprised if they just walked in the room right now. And nothing, no A, B, C, D, like climax conclusion needs to happen because she is just so masterful at understanding the human condition and putting it into the exact most natural words that it's like it's not even a book it's just real life recorded somehow just how, that's exactly how i felt about the weekend yes. as well it was so vivid to me so everything real. was so real so vivid i believe that those women exist i believe it i yeah. fully believe and it you're saying you're never taken out of the story yes even when reading the fraud by zadie smith there are some passages where I really loved them, but I was I thought, oh, this is how Zadie feels about being a forty-seven year old woman. Yeah, this right. is how Zadie feels about premenopause. This is how Zadie feels about aging. Mm. And I loved reading it, but in Charlotte Wood's books, you never have that thought. You just everything is so real and vivid. And the weekend was about four. Was it three or four women going to pack up the house of their the beach house of their dead friend? Three women going to pack up the f- passed away fourth friend, and they're house. in their seventies. And I loved that book. I also really loved The Luminous Solution, mm. her book about creativity. And she is an author who I search on podcasts when yes. she has stuff comes out and listen to her interviews. She's such a thoughtful, warm, interesting person. I can't wait to read this book. I teach from her work all the time. That actually brings us neatly to one of the stories that a lot of people are talking about, which was in the ABC. Yep. So Spotify is moving into audiobooks. This is pretty big. (laughs) It's a pretty big deal. The article talks about um, how 
audiobooks in particular are a really fast growing way that new demographics of people will come to books. So in particular, young people and in particular men, they're not the biggest demographic of audiobook listeners or book readers, but that's, those are demographics that are growing the fastest for, in terms of who is listening to audiobooks. Apparently one in three Australians listening to listen to audiobooks now. And what's going to happen is that until now, Audible who are owned by Amazon were the only like real place apart from your public library accounts uh, to have audiobooks available. Whereas from now on, Spotify are making premium members, Spotify are giving premium members 15 hours of audiobooks each month and they can access 150,000 titles. So it's like a pretty big deal for the book industry, I think. I think it's a big deal. Do you think it's positive? Negative or a little bit of both? Okay, so something I wanted to mention was that super cheeky fucked thing that Audible was caught out for doing, and I'm I my understanding is that they don't do it anymore, where they would let Audible subscribers have an audiobook in their account for months, even up to a year, and then just return it. And what that meant for the author was that people could listen to your audiobook and you wouldn't get any royalties, whereas it was great for Audible because people would keep paying their monthly subscriptions. Do you mean that Audible has started giving authors the royalty for that or they've stopped? The they've, re- uh, my understanding is that they have significantly like updated and restricted their returns policy. Okay, because their refund policy is still quite generous. generous. Yeah. yeah, but not like not, not a year. months to a year. Yeah. And so one of the reasons, the reason that's relevant to this is because I think one of the reasons Audible sort of got away with that for so long is because there was no healthy competition. And I just think it's a really good thing that a big company that is owned by an even bigger company that at least another big company is entering the scene. It's I just agree. I think audiobooks are so fantastic yeah. for my own reading, but also just obviously for ex- accessibility issues. You know, my aunt's blind and it's amazing to see the change in the industry from when my first book came out in 2018 and it wasn't an audiobook. And audiobooks were definitely around, but they didn't make everything an audiobook. Mine wasn't made an audiobook. And you could basically get the big titles mm. to now. Ne- and what's that like five years ago to yeah. now where you can get almost every book published as an audio book, which I think is so fantastic. And I listen to them all the time, particularly nonfiction. I love reading nonfiction on audio books, you know, walking or doing the chores or whatever. I understand that there are concerns for authors. Basically we have to figure out how you pay the author's royalties on them and make sure that authors are getting paid a decent amount on it. I think it's super positive for there to be competition against Amazon, which owns Audible. And 15 hours a month is great with Spotify. But in this article on the ABC, it raised this issue, which I did find a little bit concerning, which is that if Spotify stopped at being 15 hours, so you get 15 hours a month of audiobooks, and then from then they want you to pay. Mm. Fair enough. As long as in the future, they don't make it unlimited hours a month as part of like, your music subscription because if they made it unlimited hours a month, essentially books would become part of streaming and there would just be almost no way for authors to make money from them, like which is the same issue that bands and it has not been resolved at all. Bands and musicians and, have been struggling with this since yeah, Spotify. For, with Spotify yeah. for years now and it's almost like you can't put the genie back in the bottle 
with it. Like they haven't been able to figure out a way to get paid. There are musicians who have songs that have a million streams and they essentially get paid $12 for that or like some other crazy tiny number. And so th- that's the only concern in with Spotify. If they kept keep it capped at 15 hours, that's reasonable, that's great, authors can still get paid. But if they ever remove that cap and books enter the world of streaming, then essentially we won't be making any money off our audiobooks. And audiobooks are so – well, music is so much work to create, obviously, um, but audiobooks are so much work. Yeah. I was so – so I had to audition for my second book, which was nonfiction. I had to audition for my memoir. Yeah, and did you pass your audition? Barely. I didn't. <laughs> They wrote back almost immediately, we'll find someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Which I was fine with because everyone I know, you included, but I remember Rick doing his one, especially when you're doing a memoir, like my book of essays was, you know, very, very insightful, very clever, very funny. I found it all three of those things. (laughs) But your memoir and Rick's memoir had a lot of traumatic stuff in there and then you guys had to go into these tiny booths and read it out loud. Yeah. I remember it was, yeah, I I will never again. I've recorded the audio books for all three of my books so far because they've been first person nonfiction. And so was my essays. Yeah, but you like, just have a nicer voice than me. No, but like <laughs> I really, I, I, it's an excruciating process mm. and I do not intend to ever do it again. Remember when Rick was doing – because he did both and I remember when he was – and both dealt with traumatic events in his life. And I I remember – and he was a smoker at the time. He's been quit for more than a year now. And I remember him telling me he was in like this dark room leaving like, you know, every 30 minutes or so or maybe even, you know, maybe every hour to smoke ciggies and coming back. And I thought, God, imagine how that much must have felt to be in this enclosed dark space, stinking of ciggies and tasting ciggies and then craving ciggies. And then coming back in to read these traumatic things in your life and then being stopped at certain points, they portray this very well in season two of And Just Like That. <laughs> <laughs> when Carrie Bradshaw oh, yeah. has to do the audiobook of her memoir about her husband dying. <gasps> I joke, but it actually is well portrayed about how, like they stop you at certain points and say redo that sentence, redo that word. Mm. And also it must be unique agony Reading it out loud and thinking, oh, I would have phrased, like, can I change that? Oh, yeah. Oh, can I phrase? And you're not allowed to. That's one of the most excruciating things. You're not allowed to change it. You see everything you wish you'd done differently. Yeah. yeah. And it's too late. Which every writer would do on every rereading of anything. Yeah, especially because done. often when you're recording an audiobook, in terms of the timeline, it's occurring when you have completely finished it, it's been published, you can't change anything. And it's the first time that you've had a few months break from it since all of the like really close reading and like forensic level editing. And so you've got fresh eyes. You come back to it for the first time in ages having had a break and you see all of your regrets. Um, The final thing I want to mention on this though is a little plug. We are almost at, well, we're basically, we've raised $45,000 out of $55,000 for the Freedom Inside crowdfund to get women with lived experience of incarceration to go back into prisons in New South Wales and run book clubs for women still stuck inside. This is this um, advocacy initiative that I co-founded with an incredible organisation called the Women's Justice Network. And the reason it's relevant is because 
something that we will be pushing for is getting access to audiobooks for women who are in prison. That would be so transformative. Which would be fully transformative because something that we're very aware of is the differing levels of literacy, both um, for English-only speakers and also for people who speak fantastically in other languages and just can't necessarily read and write in English. And if you've not yet heard me rave about this thing, Freedom Inside, F-R-E-A-D, it's a clever pun, please go and look. Uh, We are at the final, final leg of of fundraising and I think we can get it done before the end of the year. We'll put those links definitely in our show notes and we'll also post them on Instagram as well. Yes, please. For people to um, go to and donate. Such a great cause. The other big story of the week I really want to talk to you about is two, two in particular of the winners of this year's Nobel Prize. I want to talk about the economics winner and then I think we should talk about the literature winner. I have much more to say on the literature winner. Oh, good. Well, I have more to say on the economics winner. Okay. I'm going to dive into her because I think she's a fucking legend. So the Nobel for economics this year went to Claudia Golden. Huge milestone is that she's the first ever winner, um, the first ever woman to win solo the Nobel for economics. There have been two women who've won in the past, but both of them were co-winners with men. And this is something that is noticeable across several Nobel categories is how difficult it is for women to get solo wins, which is just so telling, right? Um, Anyway, so they awarded it to Claudia Golden for having advanced our understanding of women's labor market outcomes. And I went and like read a little bit about her and her work and something that she like sort of words that she uses to describe her own work and how her work is understood by others are that she takes this sort of historical and quite investigative approach to economics and something that her work has revealed, for example, is that in terms of the current sort of status of the gender pay gap, it has been a long time since it was actually about like women choosing different types of professions. What Claudia Golden's work has demonstrated is that the huge challenge that we've not yet been able to overcome is the pay gap that emerges immediately after people have children, that that is the sort of biggest enduring source of the gender pay gap today. Uh, And then I like she talks about how interconnected this is with something you and I have talked about before, which is like excessive employer expectations and this idea that um, of like presenteeism and how we live in this world now where you're expected to go above and beyond and work these intense hours and be very present at work. And that basically any workplace that does that automatically fucks women more than men once people become parents. She's got this book. It's called Career and Family. I think she's amazing. And it just brings me back to this argument I'm constantly talking about, which is that we will never achieve equality until an employer is as afraid and resentful of a man becoming a father as they are currently afraid and resentful of a woman becoming a mother. (laughs) And the only way you get that is by universal, free, from birth, early childhood education and care. Yes. Well, that is an important element in getting it. I agree. But I also think that workplaces need to transform the way they think about how senior positions can be done. Mm. And there is still very much a mindset at almost all organisations, I would say, not really at my workplace, but my workplace is particularly 
my other workplace, I have like three different jobs, but um, <laughs> it's particularly progressive. But this idea that you can't have a senior position if you don't work five days a week, mm. which is extremely difficult for everyone in the household, both parents and the children when they're very young, if you have both parents working five days a week. And we need to get to a point where it's recognised that you can have someone in a very senior position working four days a week or even job sharing. Yeah, I was about to say. And, be, and then still be great at their job, essential to the company and doing great, meaningful, necessary work. And I think that that is very much a mindset that needs to change as well. What do you and- think underpins that? I'm really curious. This like outdated idea of like leadership being this kind of pyramid with a single human, particularly a man at the top? Like what is that about the resent, the suspicion towards job sharing in higher roles? I think it's probably very rooted in sexism. But also where the culture is only really just coming out of like this neoliberal aspiration that we've all been marinating in since the 1980s where if you the harder you work, the more it says about your character. Mm. And I think that people who job share or work less than five days a week are seen just not to be working as hard. And if you're not working as hard, you can't be that good at your job. And if you're not working as hard, you certainly can't be in a leadership position. And it's extremely frustrating. Mm. And the other frustrating thing is that people who work, I know so many, so many, particularly at my age, you know, in my mid-30s, I know so many women who are working three or four days a week. They're getting paid for three or four days a week. They're absolutely not working three or four days a week. You still, if you want to perform well at work and be respected, there is absolutely this expectation of making up a lot of work or doing extra work in the hours that you're not working, which is another frustrating thing. Mm, yeah, completely. You had opinions or things you wanted to share about the literature winner for the Nobel? I found him so interesting. Did you read much about him? No, I tuned out in absolute fury when I found out the fucking annual stipend he gets from the government. Yeah, okay, so (laughs) please talk about that because it was one of the interesting things that I thought. So his name is John Fossey? Foss, Fossey, F-O-S-S-E. Yeah, John Foss. John Fossey, he is Norwegian, and I respect this part. He writes in a native language of Norway that only about like 13% of people there speak. <laughs> and he gets – he's being translated, obviously, into a lot of languages, and one of one of the books he wrote is seven volumes long and it's all one sentence. I hate those kind of books, to be honest. Also, we should say he's most – known for and prolific as a playwright. Yes. He writes novels and other things as well, but playwriting is his kind of number one. And he's in his 70s, lives in Norway. Yes, talk about the stipend. He he gets paid by the Norwegian government to live in a mansion and write these plays. And what's the stipend? Okay, so I tried to sleuth this out and could only find the kind of krona equivalent from websites that I wouldn't, I don't know. I, I don't know this for sure. It wasn't a government website, but when I looked it up, it was the equivalent was well over 500,000 Australian dollars a year. So I had difficulty finding the exact number as well yeah. because I think some of it is made up of his free huge house that he gets from the Norwegian government. I respect it. I think we, sh- we should get free huge houses. Actually, you think no- someone whose work services like 15% of the population at best should get m- – 
Well, he's getting translated. No, I actually don't really think that any artist should be given that much by the government because I think that you need to live in the real world to create good. Also, art. like you can't give someone that's tax. Yeah, that's money that is taxed from and people. Gi- yeah. Like, oh my and you're god! Giving, and so, and this guy in his seventies gets all the gets all this money. Now he's won the Nobel yeah. Prize for Literature, which is. Uh, about a million dollars in I and I looked this up because I was interested in some of the stats around it after reading some criticism which I'm about to get to in the last 13 years five white men have won which I didn't think was too bad one of them was Bob Dylan can't wait for our Nobel laureate Taylor Swift (laughs) that's definitely coming (laughs) and the criticism he got actually a lot of criticism for this from Dylan did or Foss did? Foss did from, no, everyone loved it when Dylan got it. Really? Everyone loves oh Dylan. What the fuck? <laughs> he got a lot of criticism from Arabic writers in particular, which was interesting. And a rea- this Iraqi novelist, Azir Jirjiz, he lives in exile in Norway and he called Fossey a writer of inverted commas domestic literature who, and this is direct quote, has no position on wars, global violence, or the oppression of peoples, and stuffs his ears with dough against the screams of the oppressed. Oh. Now, I love that as some bitching from the sidelines from someone who didn't win. Yeah, that is some, like, <laughs> lit crit gossip level, yeah, like, shit-throwing. You know, in 2023, after the last, everything the world has experienced since basically 2016, you know, we are living in very tumultuous times. Fucking, fucking and so I think that there there is an element to this that I can I can see where he's coming from, and there is an element of this where I that I agree with, where it is it must be very nice to not have to be political. Mm. And you're you're a person of certain privilege. You don't have to be political. What is the point of art? Is art there to serve us during these? difficult times and to take a stance and to try to change society. I can see where he's coming from with that. On the flip side, I am someone who values the domestic life so much and how people live so much and I do find it so interesting and I do find it the very foundation of life and the meaning of life and why we're here is how people live in the domestic sphere and I am interested in that. And even people who are living like which we see again and again in art and again and again in people's stories, even people who are living in the most grim circumstances still have aspects of ordinary domestic life and are still human beings who are going through each day dealing with their relationships with other people. Actually thinking a bit of Shader in that, the movie Shader, yes. which we discussed a couple of weeks ago, which dealt with that very well. So the thing that sets off alarm bells here for me, though, is that there is a way in which a man will be rewarded for insight into the quote-unquote domestic and when a woman does it, it's not taken seriously. It's chiclet. Yeah, it's chiclet. You get a pink cover. Yeah. Exactly. I don't get a pink cover. No, My cover is no, There is no pink on your cover. <laughs> and the Lebanese critic and poet Nabil Mamluk said Fossey's win, direct quote, opens the door to one problematic question. How is the winner chosen? Are the world's readers implicitly consulted? To what extent do the award criteria represent the taste and art of reading? Which I think is such a good question. Like we, we, I don't think we want to award the Nobel Prize of Literature to like Colleen Hoover. 
<laughs> I'm going to look up. Because she's got enough money to keep her warm at night. She's like a romance writer topping all the charts. But I did think that that was an interesting issue to raise. Like you're getting a million dollars and praised as like one of the pinnacles of literature in English-speaking world. Does it matter if you're read or not and who gets to and who does get to be the arbiter of taste on that? So here, I've just come I've just found on and this is from nobelprize.org, so legit. What criteria do you use to choose Nobel Prize laureates? It's all about quality, literary quality, of course. The winner needs to be someone who writes excellent literature, someone who you feel when you read that there's some kind of a power, a development that lasts through books, all of their books. But the world is full of very good, excellent writers and you need something more to be a laureate. It's very difficult to explain what that is. Motherfucker, try. It's but something, also who gets to decide this? Yeah, like that's who what I is mean. deciding what's excellent? It's something you're born with. I'm still quoting directly here. It's something you're born with, I think. The romantics would call it a divine spark. Jesus. For me, who's, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm going to find that in a Who's deciding the divine spark? Blah, 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 blah. It. It's something you're born with. Get fucked. A talent that gives that, that extra dimension to that particular writer's work. Okay, so this is from the Nobel website. We spoke to Ellen Matson. M-A-T-T-S-O-N, who helps to decide the Nobel Prize in literature. She's a writer, a novelist, a member of the Swedish Academy and also of the Nobel Committee. Yeah, so it's very opaque. Opaque? Opaque. <laughs> opaque. Oh, my God, that's a good one. It is very opaque how they decide. And you, do you, did you know that they don't release a short list uh, yeah. until 50 years after the prize? And a, and a final thing that I thought was interesting in the awarding of, I don't actually have a very strong opinion of him winning this because I haven't read any of his No, work. me either, which is why and I would never pass judgment. Yeah, so about, I'm not yeah. passing judgment. I just thought that the conversations around it were really interesting. And the other, the final thing I was going to say about this was that other critics detected a bias toward European and Scandinavian culture and towards men. He is the 17th writer of Scandinavian origin to win the prize out of 120 laureates. Well, maybe you're just fucking born with it, aren't yeah, maybe, you? <laughs> maybe the Scandinavians are just born, born with that divine spark. Fucking like, talent. Like, there's obvious bias there, isn't there? And then also, guess how many – so 17 writers of Scandinavian origin in the whole history of – 120-year history of the prize. Guess how many women? Mm, how many? 17. So just as many Scandinavians as women have been thought to have the divine spark. Oh, my God. If there was something I could fucking set fire to on a pyre, it would be the divine spark. Jesus. But also that all awards so... are bullshit. So this yes, is just a really fun conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, have, we'll go in. We'll, let's do a deep dive on awards at some time. They're all bullshit. What have you got coming up this week? My brother is visiting. No, wrong answer, Bridie. We're having a party. <laughs> yes, we're having a party. To celebrate the launch of this podcast. I'm excited. And all and all of our listeners, I'm so excited for us. You're making me wear a cocktail dress. I'm making everybody get dressed <laughs> because we are the occasion. And I say we, I mean everyone who will be in my home, not we as in Bridie and I. Although <laughs> technically it's our launch party, so we are the occasion. And, well, can't wait to tell you guys, listeners, all about it when we come back. And I'm sure there'll be lots of photos online as well. yeah. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review. We love reading them, especially the glowing ones. 
You can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Bree Bridie, and every episode is on YouTube, so you can watch Bree's reactions <laughs> as they happen. <laughs> This episode was produced by Sam Devonport and it was recorded on Gadigal Land. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts.